0: Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes.
1: Hello, I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And you're listening to the Australian Finance Podcast. A podcast
0: where we talk about money,
1: finance, investing,
0: and all that good stuff.
1: We're helping you invest your time and money better one podcast episode at a time.
0: Yes, so please subscribe if you like the series. And don't forget you can find us on social media. We're on all the platforms. Kate, where can people go?
1: You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Rask Australia. That's R-A-S-K Australia.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm Owen Rask on Twitter. Or Owen Rask AU on Instagram. Beware the imitators. People like to copy us. Without further ado, let's jump in to today's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, Kate.
1: It is good to be back, Owen, for a little bit of a different episode today.
0: Yeah, yeah. We uh, we do so much throughout the year that um, we figured let's try and foster some of that greatness. Let's bring it up to the surface.
1: Yes. And 2022 has been a huge year for us. And we love having the opportunity to talk to so many of the world's best and brightest on our podcasts. And it's one of the best parts of our week. And that's the great thing about podcasts because we have the opportunity to bring these conversations to you with people that you and I might never actually get to sit down and have a cup of coffee with otherwise.
0: Yeah, indeed. So, this episode's a little bit different. Uh, we're going to record, we're going to share eight uh, short snippets from some of our favourite guests during 2022. It's a very tough selection, um, but Kate and I pulled out some of the best bits, best bites of audio uh, from the year that stuck out to us during 2022.
1: Yes, and we've got Monique working her magic here. So, you're going to hear a bit of an intro from us before each clip. Each clip's around three to five minutes, and we're included a link to all the episodes that we highlight in today's episode Mm -hmm. in the show notes so you can get stuck into any that you've missed or any that you want to listen to again over the summer. Mm, For sure. One of our favorite episodes from 2022 was our conversation with international bestseller Nir Ayal, who I got in touch with after I listened to his book called Indistractable in 2021. And I got to chat to Nir about the root causes of our distractions, why we're putting off doing less pleasant tasks like our taxes and how we can better protect our time i think this is a really important episode for all of us at any stage in our finance and life journey really because it's all about maximizing your choices in life and spending more time on the things that bring you joy because money can't buy time here's a snippet of our conversation with nia
0: but one of the things that we talk about on the um, australian finance podcast is basically how do we protect our money and make money, basically? Uh, so we talk about, you know, building diversified portfolios. I know you're an investor, so you can relate to all of this. Um, but we don't talk much about how do we protect our time. So I thought maybe this is a good way to start. Um, how do we protect our time? And what are some of the strategies? Like why, I guess even why do we protect our time? What are some of the strategies? And, and how do we go about doing this in the first instance?
2: Yeah, the, these two topics really do go together like hand in glove. Uh, you know, we, we hear time is money. But I actually mm. think time is more important than money. Uh, it's no coincidence that we use the same language to describe time and money, right? We make money just like we make time. Uh, we uh, spend money just like we spend time. We pay attention just like we pay with dollars and cents. And yet we're so stingy with our money, mm. right? We mm. uh, maximize our taxes. You know, we, we minimize our taxes. We split checks with our friends if we go out to lunch. We clip coupons. We do all these things to save a, a, a buck. But actually, I think most people have it backwards, that we should be generous with our money and stingy with our time. Why? Because you can always make more money. You can always right. make more money, right? You cannot make more time, whether you're uh, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos or you know, uh, you know, Elon Musk. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money you have. They all have the same 24 hours in a day. We only have so many fixed hours. And so it's absolutely essential that we make sure that we use our time just as efficiently, if not more so, uh, that we do with our money.
0: Mm. It's a fascinating thing, right? Because I don't think many of us stop to think about that. We we kind of get frustrated at how much time um, we don't have, um, yet we go and do it on fr- frivolous things and distractions as we're about to get to. So Kate, um, this is your question. I don't want to take it away from you. I know this is the one you wanted to ask, Nia. so go for it.
1: Yeah, if we're thinking about time as a more finite thing and a bit more precious, one of the things that often stops us using it in the way we want is all of those pesky little distractions. And I know when I was reading, um, well, actually listening to your audio book, um, you mentioned that distractions will always exist and managing them is our responsibility. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about distractions and what the cost is of letting them
2: just run, run wild in our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So to continue this analogy with with money, we wouldn't sit on the corner and say, here, everybody, take my money. Here's a few dollars. Here's a 10. Here's a 20. We wouldn't just give anybody our money. And yet when it comes to our time, this finite resource, we give it to whoever asks for it, right? Some stupid things on the news. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you my time and attention. Uh, The kids want this. The boss wants this. Your phone buzzes and rings and dings. Yeah, sure. Take my time. Take my attention as if it's worth nothing. And that's a big, big mistake because what this leads to is a life filled with regret. That's ultimately what leads to, because look, fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with going on Instagram or, uh, watching television or, you know, uh, reading the news. But when it comes at the expense of other things in our life, when it becomes a distraction, that's when it's a problem. So I wrote Indistractable for me more than anyone else. You see, I was very distracted <laughs> and I needed help. And in fact, it took me five years to write this book because for four of those years, I was really distracted <laughs> and it was hard to, to finish the book. But when I dove into the literature, into the psychology literature of why do we get distracted, I, 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 I changed my life. I mean, there's no area of my life today that's not affected by my ability to do what I say I, I'm going to do, whether it's you know eating right, I do that. If it's, I say I'm gonna exercise, I do it. If I say I'm gonna be fully present with my family, I'm there. If I say I'm gonna work on that big project and, and, and achieve my professional goals, I do it. And so it's, it, this is the skill of the century because if you think the world is distracting now, it's only going to become more distracting. So it's absolutely critical that we learn for ourselves how to become indistractable and teach our kids how to be indistractable as well, because this is truly the skill of the century. You know, if if you're not reading the books you say you're going to read, if you're not going to bed on time, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not following through on on other goals and objectives in your life, this is why it's not that we don't know what to do. I mean, this is the, the first time in history where We we all basically know what to do. And if we don't, we we Google it, right? If you don't know how to do something, you can Google it in a second and get and get the answer. Because we all basically know, right? Who doesn't know how to how to diet, right? You eat right, you exercise. We know that. Who doesn't know that if you want better relationships with your family, you have to be fully present with people? Who doesn't know that if you want to excel at your job, you have to do the hard work, especially the stuff that other people don't want to do? Who doesn't know that if you want to achieve financial independence, you have to save and invest, right? We know what to do. Mm. We just don't do it. We keep getting in our own way. We keep getting distracted. And so the solution is to become indistractable, is to be the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do.
0: So why does the stock market go up? This is a question that many investors ponder and one that well-known US investor, educator and author Brian Feroldi answered in his first book. We loved Brian's YouTube videos, newsletter and even his Twitter posts, so we knew we had to get him on the show. Here's a snippet of our conversation with Brian.
1: Given how long you've been investing for, much longer than Owen and I, I believe, from what I've seen online, um, I wanted to ask you about some of those um, periods of investing through challenging times, such as the dot-com crash and the, um, the 08 market crash, because a lot of us and our listeners in our community haven't actually invested through any of those times. So it's cool to learn from experiences of people like yourself who've been through it.
3: Yeah, so I started investing in 2004. That was when I had an, I had a job and was able to like put money uh, in the markets. I can tell you that I remember the dot com crash of 2000 and 2001, specifically 2001, because like everybody else in the world, I was glued to my TV on September 11th, 2001, and I saw all the everything that was going on with the terrorist attacks. And I vividly remember the next couple of days once the markets reopened out. How- Everything was just straight down, like everything was just red. And I remember reading in the paper. Again, I didn't pay much attention to the market, but I knew it was bad, right? I knew that it was just like horrible uh, what was happening. And at the time, I had no clue what the Dow Jones Industrial Average was, what the New York Stock Exchange was, what the Nasdaq. I had no clue what any of those terms meant. But I did know it was bad when they were going down. And I remember thinking at the time, like, well, that's it like we capitalism had a good run right this whole stock thing i think it worked out for a while but it's over right look how look how bad it's doing uh, now and spoiler alert it came back and it was uh, fully recovered essentially by the time i started investing in 2004 so like i said i was uh, very, uh, very into investing. Very interested in learning. Uh, I had a bunch. I was starting to put capital into the market and really learn about investing from 2004 until 2008, and that's when the Great Recession hit uh, the United States. And I vividly remember uh, numerous times putting capital, a lot of capital, into the market at that time. My income had gone up significantly. We didn't have any kids at the time, so our savings rate was very, uh, very high. And every time I put money in the market, it like immediately fell twenty. Right. It was like, oh, I bought, I bought again. And it was like the next day, boy, was that a terrible decision. (laughs) Like it just felt, it felt so awful to be doing this and putting money in. And I'd be great, now I'm buying at lower prices. And then it would immediately go down and great, I'm buying at lower prices and immediately went down. And this happened over and over and over again for a period of uh, of months. But one thing I think I did right is that I knew that, um, I knew that over long periods of time, the stock market went up. I don't think I fully understood why that was, but I did feel that I was buying at better and better and better um, prices. And I had faith that it was going to come back eventually. Although, boy, was it scary. Um, boy, was it scary. Uh, at the time. Now, within a matter of like three years, I think the market had fully recovered and it's and it's just gone uh, straight up uh, ever since then. So the last 10 years have been extremely uh, profitable period to be an investor, especially in um, uh, the US market. So those purchases I made that felt awful, felt awful in 2008, 2009, and 2010 uh, really have done uh, wonders for my uh, portfolio uh, and returns uh same thing that, it felt the exact same way in February and March of 2020 like the exact same the exact same way it was like you put money in and immediately you lose and it just goes down 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 like so 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 fast it was such a fast period to to lose wealth and it was even faster on the way up to like nope well, the, the market's gonna go straight up from there so dealing with volatility is is never is never easy however now that I've been through numerous downturns and upturns uh it it makes it, easier to, it makes it easier to do so, but it's still not easy.
1: Chatting to Claudine shish over two episodes, which was a happy accident because I stuffed up the recording, gave me a lot to think about. The more in-depth I am into my investing journey, the more I recognize the importance of my mindset and behavior on what I do. These are some timeless episodes that I'm definitely going to be re-listening to over the summer. And I hope you enjoy this clip from my chat with Claudine. Things like I'm not smart enough um, to, to invest or to build wealth, or I need to know everything. As as you mentioned before, I need to be perfect before I make a decision, or I'm not the kind of person that invests. I've been told my whole life I'm bad with money, and that's just my reality, and I can't do anything to change it. And they, they can often hold us back from getting started, can't they?
4: Mm-hmm. 100%. I just want to point out what you just said, Kate. It's a really great Um, noticing point. So, when you just said, I'm not the type of person that, when we say sentences like, I'm the type of person that, or I'm not the type of person that, it's almost like that's when we need to have a little red flag saying, oh, what am I about to say here? Because we need to cross-check however we finish that sentence. Usually, when we finish that sentence, what we... Going to say is typically a fixed mindset. I'm not the type of person that can make a fast decision. Who says? <laughs> you know, maybe you can. Like um, pilots, you know, uh, your fighter pilots, um, yeah, you know, airplane, anyone who's a pilot, they have exercises to practice faster decision making. We need we can we can change that. So you might be a slow decision maker, but you can change that with conscious awareness and by making the decision to actively not labor over making a decision. A lot of people labor a decision like what am I gonna have for lunch? They spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes really worried about whether or not they're gonna order the wrong thing. Guess what? You've got lunch again tomorrow. Just you're gonna choose like make a decision. It it, it can seem really, you know, um, Not that powerful, but making a decision. What am I going to wear? What am I going to do? How am I going to show up? And just practicing, like, not laboring decisions and, you know, moving forward more quickly. Um, Not saying we need to rush through life. I'm not not saying that. I, I don't want to do that. I want to be conscious and I want to, you know, make choices that serve us. Spending 15 minutes of your day worrying about whether or not you're going to order the right meal doesn't seem like an effective use of your time, or energy. So getting really clear on, you know, noticing how do you finish this? How do you, you know, to all your listeners, how do you finish these sentences? I'm the sort of person that... What if we would have finished that sentence by saying, I'm the sort of person that is getting better and better with um, my decision-making around money every single day. I'm the sort of person that is agile and flexible and that keeps making better choices for myself. I'm the sort of person that it, um, it, you know, wants to start believing myself and I'm, I'm getting better at that every single day. And if we finish those sentences in a way that is supporting, helpful, empowering, and, and not in a fixed mindset, but has some flexibility to it, meaning that we're not just like this. In fact, we're human beings and we're many, many different ways.
1: Yeah, and the more we repeat these phrases to ourselves in that little loop in our heads, the more they stick with us and we start believing them and we tell enough people in our lives that they start believing them as well. Like just one example that's not finance, like mm-hmm. I've, I'm not really great with, with my sense of direction, whether it's following Google Maps or just trying to make it to the place I just came from in the city. And I've told myself that on repeat so many times, plus I've told everybody else around me. So they're like, okay, it's not good with directions either. And I've kind of let that stop me from trying to get better with um, my sense of direction. And I know this isn't a money related thing, but I guess there's some similarities there where the more times you repeat that pattern and tell everybody else, it kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. And you stop trying to overcome that thing.
4: That is such a brilliant example because that's exactly what it is. You know, we, it's, it's like when we, say, when we say it, we say it as a definitive statement, I'm the sort of person that, and it's like this is fixed, I'm stuck. But yeah. the truth is, Kate, you're not fixed and you're not stuck. However, if you continue repeating that narrative, and I love the awareness that you've got here and your ability to sort of own that because that's where the true power lies. Lies when you notice how you think and when you can see actually that it's holding you back, that's when we can shift it. And the truth is, well, okay, maybe working with maps and, you know, using Google maps, isn't your forte. So what you, you know, you can learn anything you can, it doesn't Mm. matter if it takes you longer than someone else. So what you've got different skills. You've got, it's just an example of our thinking style. So everyone has yeah. this is different to our mindsets, but we have different thinking styles. So some people think very logically, rationally, you know, technically, financially, quantitative, some people think in concepts and metaphors. And um, you know, some people are visionary, some people are detailed. We have thinking preferences that we lean in towards. And It just tells me that you don't necessarily have a visual thinking style. You know, you think in dialogue, possibly, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're thinking in dialogue, you're thinking in words and in narrative. And it might just be that when you need to navigate, you know, try putting on the, well, the audio is a little delayed, right, sometimes, but putting it down into words and having the details and having the instructions there rather than having the visual map. It could be as simple as that. And that's how you can do it and of course you can improve your spatial awareness as well you know people doing sports this happens all the time so anything that we do more of we're going to get better at
0: next up we've got a fantastic guest from the us it's nick majuli nick is the author of just keep buying and the chief operating officer of ritholtz wealth management why should we be investing well according to nick we should invest to save for our future selves preserve our money against inflation, and replace our human capital with financial capital. Here's a snippet of our conversation with Nick.
1: One of the statements you made in the book was that most markets go up most of the time. And I know you've looked at a lot of different markets across the world. Are you able to expand a bit more on this statement? Because I know a lot of people do get scared that um, when they look at the sort of history of the market, that that was in the past and the future not going to be like that.
5: Well, I mean, of course, that's that's possible, you know. But we have, you know, a hundred over a hundred years of data now across multiple countries, you know, where equity markets have generally gone, you know, up and to the right over the long term. So, of course, in a decade, you know, valuations matter even on a decade period. Or, you know, markets not aren't going to necessarily go up over even a decade or fifteen or even twenty years. That sometimes happens. It's rare, but it happens. Um, but over a longer time period, they generally have increased right over someone's investment life. And so, if you just look over the most equity markets go up most of the time. And I think that's true of real estate and most things, right? Obviously, they're exceptions. You'd be like, well, what about Japan? Well, like, yes, if you had bought, if you had been a Japanese business person, you sold your business in 1988 and you bought right at the peak in 89, you know, all your money in at once, like that's like the worst investment decision in human history without realizing, obviously, what was going to happen next but how many people are making those decisions? Right? Most people are probably buying over time A, that kind of changes the risk a little bit. B, they're not they shouldn't be putting it all into one asset class. That's also what's kind of risky. So if you've been buying, you know, US stocks and Japanese stocks and maybe Japanese bonds and a host of other assets, farmland, whatever else you had, you would have had a very different financial picture than someone who put every dollar they had into the Japanese stock market in 89, right? So you know, Japan's an exception. Greece is like an exception since 08. Russia's an exception in 2022. We saw it drop like 80% in a month. And so these things happen. Trust me, I know them. I have to know all these horror stories because like, I know I have, have counter arguments for this, right? So these kind of things definitely happen, but it's like If we only invest based on what might happen, we would never invest at all, right? We would be like, oh, I can't ever get into this, right? And so you kind of have to get over that fear and say like, hey, I think the world generally is getting better. Yes, there's a lot of stuff happening. Yes, we're seeing a lot more stuff happen now because everyone has a phone and they can document things and the world looks like it's getting worse. But that stuff was happening, just wasn't being documented. We're just seeing it now. And I think that's the difference. So you got to realize like, I think the world generally is getting better. I mean, across the world, you know, people are living longer, health, outcomes are getting better generally. So, like remembering that positive you know, progression of humanity is, is kind of key to a lot of this.
0: You may know Effie Zahos. She is Australia's number one money expert who generously shared her time-tested money principles from three decades in the industry with Kate and I on the show. In this conversation, we covered Effie's journey to becoming an Australian finance icon, what money means to her, time-tested money principles, how she manages her finances with her partner, overcoming limiting money beliefs, and shares the letter she wrote to her daughter about money. Let's jump in
1: and often people when people say they want to be better at money one of the first things they want to try and target is their budgeting and yeah. yeah i know we've had listeners write in before and like oh i've tried a lot of different budgeting methods but i still can't really figure out what works because my expenses and change every month do you have any strategies there and with budgeting yeah uh, budgeting so personal
6: isn't it i can it get <laughs> can get killed for this yeah um <laughs> For for me, it's um. I, I look at my budget twice a year because a budget is never set in stone. It changes. It's got to move with you. Um, and I just do the good old Excel spreadsheet. I'm yeah. an old fashioned. You're type like of girl. Yeah, oh, you I the like me? Yeah, the Yeah,
0: yeah. Because
1: yeah. there's lots of apps yeah. out there. I'm surprised yeah. no, you didn't. No, ju- no,
0: I, no. No. Simple he spreadsheet. loves
1: Spreadsheets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> same. case. Yeah. do you prefer an app or do you? Oh, I just I just use the app. I'm kind of. My, the way yeah. I do it is I'm like, this is how much I want to save and invest every month yeah. and if I can do that, then I don't really mind what happens with the rest It yeah. this can happen. Yeah.
6: Yep. I met a guy that had 27 sub-accounts, so, you know, his savings accounts, wow. 27. Okay. I mean, in this day and age, you don't pay fees on bank accounts, so you can do that. It just goes to show how fine he broke his budgeting yeah. down. So, I, I do do an Excel spreadsheet basically and the, the beauty about everything being digital now, we've got a digital... Digital footprint you mm-hmm. only need to have a look at someone's budget to really understand how they value money um, and then I highlight things that just keep going out I highlight basically regular costs in one color then I highlight discretionary spending in another do that and that will be quite an eye opener because it's discretionary spending that really kills a budget so from there what I do is that the, the household bills I do that check do that twice a year. Am I still on the best possible deal? Your phone plans change. I may not need as many gigabytes. Things move. Things change. So I I, I detox my finances there. Clean that up, and then um, the other one. I, I it's a great reminder of this discretionary spes- spending. I then set up buckets. I name the buckets because once you put them as a personal thing. I'm really not going to take money out of, say, my daughter's account. Poor Nikki. I can't take money out from there. So, you know, I've named them, made them personal. For me, a perfect budget is when my income comes in, um, it gets dispersed completely out. There's nothing in that transaction account left. Um, And, you know, I pay myself first. It is a bill. Um, And we talked about forced savings as well. Um, Mm. I I know Invest Smart, and I thought it's a very clever product in the sense it's playing on the the theme of buy now, pay later. This is um, invest now, fund later. I've actually invested in that myself because I want to get a feel Mm. for it, real feel for it because I love the concept. The thing is a lot of us don't save Mm. but we're great at paying debt. So, you know, in this case, turn it into a debt, and then you pay it off and, you know, in, you, the way it works, obviously, you, you only need to put 4000 down to get a 10000 investment. It's not for everyone, but it's that forced saving. So, for me, I pay myself, I automate everything and it just happens. Mm.
0: You okay. sound like a hybrid of Kate and I. Oh, do <laughs> because I? Because yeah. Kate's massive advocate for automating, which we both are, but I also did exactly the same thing. And I'm like, I found someone that does it too, which is the spreadsheet or yeah. like a bank statement and highlighting. I typically only do it for all of the big expenses at tax time Mm -hmm. because I've got to get it right, like for accounting and for the the tax agent. So I go through and if this this is a fuel cost or if this is a subscription and this is this, and then I identify it's kind of like the retrospective budget because that's a realistic, you said it like, Look at someone's bank account and it kind of reflects how they value money. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a powerful phrase because
1: yeah. it does, right? We I can think it's all an say quote.
6: Was it an actual quote by yeah, President? Isn't it? Uh, Don't
1: tell me what you value. Show yes. me where you spend your money. Yeah. i better tell not take you credit for yeah. <laughs> yeah. that one. Oh, no, this is, uh, yeah.
0: This is, uh, this is yours. Let's own it. No. Um- <laughs> it's definitely not <laughs> loosely <laughs> inspired. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's true, right? Like we. I speak to a lot of financial planners and they say the retrospective budget, looking backwards is the one that we use.
6: Well, you've got to look backwards in order to move forwards. That's Mm. what I, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Where has my money gone? How can I be better at it? Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm a kind of combination of both of you.
1: Meeting the talented Emma Edwards this year was a wonderful experience. She provides some great perspectives to better manage your relationship with money and actually feel good about it at the same time. She's well known on her Instagram handle, The Broke Generation, and she's also got a podcast of the same name, which I have definitely been recommending to many friends this year. Here's a snippet of our conversation with Emma. And I I think a lot of advertising makes, as you mentioned, makes us feel like we should have it all. And as soon as we get that full-time job, everything should just come to us on a silver platter. And I think that's often how we fall prey to buy now, pay later ads and credit card ads where it's have it now, you deserve it. And I think that can often lead us astray because we end up going into debt. And I think you've had some experience um, sort of helping like, yourself and your listeners get out of debt as well.
7: Yeah, debt for me again. It was a symptom of many other things, and I think particularly as young women, I'm I'm, ass- I'm sure it's true for people in their late teens and early twenties now, but definitely for me, like late two thousands, um, a lot of spending is a performance of femininity and womanhood and uh, desirability by men at that time. You know, we dress a certain way to look thinner, to look taller. You know, we spend a lot of money on all of these things. And if you are dealing with a lot of those things, you can sort of ultimately disregard, particularly when you're young and you think you've got the rest of your life to figure it out, you can disregard how much it's impacting your finances because you're just trying to fix whatever uh, Lifestyle Magazine or, you know, teen or adolescent magazine told you you needed to fix at that time. Things are a lot more inclusive now or getting that way and we're kind of we might rather than reading about cellulite creams or whatever we might learn about how to love ourselves but on so many levels particularly with buy now pay later ads and all that kind of stuff and there is a very much have it now pay for it later or have it now deal with it later or feel a certain way now and deal with it later so yeah that's how I got into debt and to be honest my debt spending was was no different to any other spending a lot of people you know Go into debt because they were flying to Dubai or buying handbags, or it was, there was none of that big stuff. It was just a combination of that symptom spending of mental health issues or, or, you know, a bad relationship with myself as well as my money and it being my emergency fund because I didn't have any savings. So even if I wasn't buying something because I deserved it because I'd had a bad day, because I was having a bad body image day or whatever, I would be fixing a flat tire with it because. I didn't have any savings. I couldn't keep any money. And so investing in wealth creation was never even an option because I couldn't even hold on to any money to fix my tire, let alone invest or save. Yeah. And going
1: on from, as you mentioned, dealing with the symptoms, what are some of the strategies that worked for you or um, you found work for other people as well along the journey to help build that better relationship with money instead of it, it being potentially Debt is your emergency fund, or you're using money to fill a emotional void, or where, where, whatever reason you need to use the money.
7: Yeah, it's it's individual to everybody, and obviously, your spending being a symptom of something. What that something is can be on a, a, a sliding scale, and in some cases, there needs to be professional intervention. Obviously, we can't disregard that, um, and it's it's often difficult talking about it because I kind of tell my story and I go and then I changed my habits and I did this and people are going... How? Mm. And- Just overnight. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of things and it's a bit like the science of behavior change. There is this whole pre-contemplation stage where you are contemplating making change. It's been studied in smokers and people changing their um, diet and exercise habits and that kind of thing. And it's true for all kinds of behavior change. You are in several stages before you actually make the change. And I think in that contemplation and pre-contemplation stage, you firstly need to make the link between how you feel about everything but money and your money. Um, Because often, you know, we don't think that. We think it's because there's not enough. It's because I've got kids. It's because I am on a low salary. It's because I live in London or I live in Melbourne or I live in Sydney, you know. And we kind of have these um, explanations, not excuses, but explanations for why our money is the way it is. And we don't ever connect it to anything else. So I think firstly, making that link and looking at where your money is and where your money is going, how much is coming in and how much is going out. Sounds basic, but not just how much you're spending, but where it's actually going and, you know, going a bit deeper and, you know, okay, you bought a top. Mm -hmm. Okay. What, what was it just a top or were you trying to achieve something or feel a certain way or, are you always spending at five o'clock on a Friday because you hate your job and you're drinking yourself into oblivion to forget about it? Like it's common for a lot of people. And doing that when you live in a capital city is really expensive. And I mean, I had this experience. I had a job that made me quite unhappy when all my jobs have made me quite unhappy at some point. (laughs) But um, I was, you get into the culture. If you're in a, environment where there's a culture of drinking and it is the type of drinking where you're funding it yourself rather than office drinking, which is slightly more common in some industries. But I was out there drinking with like the CFO. He could afford it. (laughs) I was on like equivalent $32,000 in London when it was like Twelve pounds for a glass of wine, wow. you know. Like, but when you are sort of in those environments, you know, sometimes it could be a symptom of being unhappy about something, or sometimes it can be a symptom of just the contextual life that you are living, where your finances just don't match. Um, and sometimes it can be, you know, a bit more logical, and, and there, are, you know, maybe there are less feelings, but it's just that you're in an environment where your spending habits can't coexist with with your finances. It can happen in friendship groups when, you know, you've got doctors, lawyers, and then let old you on an advertising apprenticeship. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, we behave the same way and we, we keep up with our peers. And I do think the keeping up with the Joneses' behavior is a little bit more of our parents' generation. I don't personally feel like I've ever consciously done that. But the environments that we exist in mean that we... Not actively keep up, but just feel compelled to participate in the same types of hobbies, holidays, hen
1: Next up, we've got Dr. Sam Wiley, an associate professor of finance at the University of Melbourne and definitely one of the guests I learned a lot from this year. Sam has a wonderful way of explaining the things that most of us find a bit tricky, like interest rates, creating money and why things just got more expensive this year. In this clip, Sam explains what all the fuss about inflation means.
0: The topic at the tip of everyone's tongue right now is inflation. What does that mean? Um, and then the idea that interest rates have to go up to protect us against that. And I know we've talked about this previously, but um, I guess maybe we can start off with a very kind of simple question, Sam, that is kind of narrow is, are you surprised that we are talking about inflation in 2022 as much as we are?
8: Um- it's not surprised. It's um, It was inevitable, uh, to a certain extent, Owen, that inflation would become the big question after COVID-19. Because inflation, as you know, means the prices in the economy going up, prices of cars, of houses, of restaurant meals, of clothing, of everything, of all the goods and services. You know, goods like, as I said, cars and computers and phones, and services like Uber rides and restaurant meals and Uh, and holidays and the like, and education and the like. So the price of goods and services going up in general across the economy, that's what inflation means. It's just like blowing up a balloon. There's some pressure that's forcing everything up, uh, everything out. Uh, And so that's what inflation means. And there's different types of inflation. And what we're referring to here is consumer price inflation, the cost of living, um, as they say. And that's the CPI. That's the thing that is put together by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, it's reported every three months uh, in Australia, and it's and it's a big deal when it when it comes out uh, the cost of living, and it's an index. I know I'm banging on a bit here, but it's an index, which which means it's it's helpful to explain what an index is. So if if I was to say to you, uh, Owen, you know what happened to inflation um, last year, it's unhelpful to come back with. Computers up 6%, and airline travel down 5%, and cars up 4%, and chewing gum up 3%, et cetera. You know, I don't want it's unhelpful for you to bang on and on about it. It'd be good just to have one number that tells me how much prices and the cost of living uh, went up. And that's what the CPI is, that's what the Consumer Price Index is. It's an average across 125 different things that an ordinary household uh, buys. And it's a weighted average, so things that are really important, like healthcare and transport and housing, the really big ticket uh, parts of what you spend money on, they have a lot of weight informing it. And things that that are smaller, like you know, sporting equipment and restaurant meals and Uber rides, uh, you know, they're important in their own right, I know, but they're a lot smaller <laughs> than the other ones that I mentioned. So they enter the index with a smaller weight, and so. Australian Bureau of Statistics collects it all by surveying lots of households. They create that weighted average. They publish it every three months. Um, that's the cost of living. And so going back to your question, am I surprised that that's, the, that's what's on the tip of everyone's tongue and, and the, the main concern about the economy? Well, not really because prices are going up so much because there's been so much stimulus of the economy. I mean, what causes prices to go up a lot here uh, is what causes prices to go up a lot is that demand is growing faster than supply. So if people, uh, uh, if the if the amount that people want to buy of all of those things is going up faster than companies are supplying it, then there's a lot of competition for those goods and services, and it drives all of those prices up. But there's another thing, and that's how much money there is in the economy, and so you can imagine that the price level depends upon Uh, how much money there is in people's bank accounts and in their purses and wallets and the like. I mean, say that the the central bank, which we'll talk about later on, the Reserve Bank, say that the Reserve Bank was to increase the amount of money that everyone has by a factor of 10. So we're going to add a zero to every note that's in your purse or wallet. We're going to add a zero to your bank account. Then obviously, the amount of money in the economy has gone up by a factor of 10, and the price of everything will go up by a factor of 10. So there's two things that are driving inflation. Is demand growing faster than supply? Is there a lot of money in circulation? And both of those things in COVID-19 went up a lot. There was a lot of stimulus of the economy. And the reserve bank, the central bank, pumped a lot of money into the economy. So, so I know that's a very long-winded answer. And I'm sorry <laughs> if I banged on about that for ages, but but I think it helps to, to sort of lay, lay those things out.
0: Finally, Friend of the show, Evan Lucas, has visited our studio a few times during the year, so we just had to include a snippet from one of his episodes in this highlight reel. In this snippet, Kate asks Evan whether we're ever too late to the game to start making a meaningful change in the direction of our financial future. I'll give you a hint. You're not.
1: And I know a lot of listeners, because we do talk about compound interest, but we do get some listeners that are starting their journey maybe in their 40s and their 50s, and sometimes they feel like it's all a bit too late. And as you said, it it comes to your mindset. How would you shift if you're in the, oh, it's too late for me to make any meaningful change? Like, how do you change that perspective?
9: My (laughs) mum. and now why I say my mum. So, you've just used a great example of like those people in their 40s and their 50s. My mum started investing when she was in her late 60s. All right. And so late 60s, right. It took me 20 years to convince her to do it. There was always an excuse. It was too hard. It wasn't the right time. I don't have the money. I don't know what I'm doing. Despite the fact, obviously, she has a son that does this for a living. (laughs) Um, And so she finally started in October 2020. Right. So, like, what a time to start.
1: Yeah. Um, you into- finally got through to her in COVID. Didn't yeah. You? In COVID. <laughs>
9: yeah. And now that she's away, she couldn't, she's like, why did I not start sooner? I said, because there are so many mental barriers. There are so many reasons not to start. Um, and she's, you know, she's going through a volatile period now, but she's still well up on what she had. And I said to her, I said, if you had to put that and left the money, what you were doing in the cash environment that you had it in, you'd actually be negative. She's still up, even though she's you know she has seen quite a decline this year, which is fine. Um, but she's also now got into the really good strategy habit of adding. So she puts in, and I don't mind saying, about five hundred bucks a month because she doesn't have kids to pay for. We don't live at home. Um, she's got no major expenditure, and she's just building this this nest egg that's outside of super for herself. So, in answer to that question, it doesn't matter how old you are. And not only that, like like everybody, those ages that you're talking about, this is the other thing about it. People believe they're going to live forever. Like we, we, this this is a genuine fact. You talk to people that are over 65 and you actually tell them that technically if you're over 65, the average lifespan of a male in Australia is, is 84. The average lifespan of a female is 89. They're within 20 years of that, right? That's a scary thing to tell yeah. people. But they don't see that and nor should they. So there's no wrong time to start because- in Mum's eyes, she's building her wealth for the next ten to fifteen years, um, and that's you know that was finally what I got through to her. And now that she started, she can see it's it's easy to do, it's simple. She keeps it simple, so she's just doing low cost index funds because she can't do the fundamental stuff that I used yeah. to do. That's and, and that I doesn't think, want to do it either. Yeah, exactly right. So getting back to your point about those people that are writing into you that are in their forties and their fifties, particularly those in your forties, come on guys, right? <laughs> You've got half your life again. Right? If you're 40 years old, right? You've got half mm. your life of, of again. If you're a male and a little bit more. If you're a female, you've even got more than that on the averages. So starting at 40, I'd say that you're you're young. Like you've got plenty of time, yeah, to get on with it. Mm.
1: Mm. And building that savings habit's really important, that putting money aside on a regular basis. Yes.
9: Yeah, it is. And I Again, I know you've spoken to people about, you know, the advantages of things like dollar cost averaging and buying consistently on a regular basis. So that if you were happy to put money into a savings account, why aren't you happy to put it into an investment account? Because the investment account will have a cash component. It really will. It'll have some form of cash component inside of it that will help you. But it then also moves you slightly up the risk reward because this is my words rather than anything. So something that I talk about a lot today, tomorrow and beyond. You've got today money. And the today money is what everybody's obsessed with. They have to see it in front of them. This is my cash balance. Bang, thanks very much. But tomorrow could be five years away. It could actually be tomorrow.
4: Mm.
9: Beyond is everything else. That is things like your house. That is things like your super. That is the investment portfolio that is building for your kids, for you know education or your retirement. But your beyond money can also come forward. So as long as you can think about things in time in a horizon – then all of a sudden your money can stretch and your investment you know, strategy and your ability to actually get into that habit can also happen because if you understand that $500 is going for to now, tomorrow, and beyond and spread across those three categories, you're not worried that you're taking $300 bucks, sorry, or 500 bucks, or whatever it is out of your today money. It's still in your today money because it's also in your be- it's tomorrow money and it's in your beyond money and it's helping that whole pool of of funds grow. That's the strategy.
1: Owen and I hope you enjoyed this selection of highlights from just some of our wonderful guests on the show during 2022. We'd really encourage you to revisit the full episode if you wanna hear more, and we've linked all of these in the show notes. If you want to help us bring more fantastic guests onto the show in 2023 and beyond, we'd love if you could leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because that helps us bring more great guests to the show.
0: Yes, as always, it does, Kate. And we'd love to hear from you if you have recommendations, so please write to us. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians.
0: to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.